My name is Peter Dahl, and I'm trying to decide between the lover's choice and the poet's choice. This is Inch High Hurdle, an unrefined podcast dabbling in refined taste. And this is Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu, or Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Sciamma's beautiful historical romantic drama from 2019. So I discovered this film, or encountered this film, I should say. I don't want to make it sound like this was some hidden, tucked away film that I unearthed because it wasn't. Um, it gained a lot of buzz when it was released in 2019 at Cannes. And so I had heard about it as being one of the best films of the year, that it was a romantic period piece, costume drama. And I'm like, yep, okay, I'm in. So when it came to Hulu in early 2020, I checked it out as quickly as I could. And I had heard such superlatives about this film that it was really remarkable to see all of those expectations met and even succeeded. Right away from the first time, I knew that this was one of the most beautiful films that I'd ever seen. It's really one of the greatest films um, in, in all my film watching life. And it's become really sort of an important milestone film for me too. It's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is that so many of these foreign language films from the last 10 years have really shaped the way that I think about the medium um, and really are just films that I like to return to and continue to explore. So I'm hoping that I can convince you to do the same thing if you've not yet checked out this masterpiece. Okay, so here's what you need to know. The, this is the part of the show where I tell you what you need to know. Oh, and just to be clear, I am going to continue with the French pronunciation as best I can throughout this. So deal with it. It's a story of a French aristocratic woman named Eloise, played by Adia Renel, who is promised to an Italian nobleman, provided he can find out what she looks like. Her mother commissions the Parisian painter Marianne, played by Naomi Milan, to paint her portrait. And as Marianne paints Eloise, they fall in love and begin a romantic affair. This is the fourth feature film from French filmmaker Celine Sciamma. It premiered in 2019 at Caen, where it competed for the Palme d'Or, but lost to uh, this little film called Parasite. Ever heard of it? Sciamma won the Festival's Screenwriting Award in a truly shocking move. The French film people nominated Les Miserables, for the Academy Award. Uh, so just to be clear, this is Les Miserables, um, which is not about Jean Valjean 24601. It is a 2019 film about uh, sort of the social unrest, racial tension, police violence, all those sort of intersecting issues in Paris in contemporary France, but it still has the title Les Miserables. And it's a really, it's an excellent film. Uh, I think it is still available on Prime. I highly recommend it, actually. You should really check it out. It's one, it's an all-timer for people shouting and being very, you know, anxious. But the fact that France chose to nominate that instead of Portrait for the foreign language Oscar is, I, I just, I don't know. I, what are we doing? It premiered in the U.S. in 2020, and like I said, this is available to rent. Oh, it being portrait. I'm continuing on from that aside. It premiered in the U.S. in 2020, and like I said, is available to rent and is included in a Hulu subscription. So, Celine Sciamma gained notoriety in 2007 upon the release of Water Lilies, 
where she first worked with Adele Canel. They have worked together frequently and were romantically involved at one time. Portrait was her major breakthrough for a worldwide audience, and she is now one of the leading directors exploring themes related to gender and sexuality. So, why should you watch this film? This is a part, part of the podcast where I tell you why you should watch this film. Portrait is simultaneously about something so specific and unexplored while also being universal. It's a love story, a beautiful, aching love story that depicts the parts of love left out of a romantic comedy. And while it's a lesbian romance, the chief effect of that is its exploration of the human gaze. Yeah, sure, it's a queer movie, but it's much, much more interested in the eyes of women than in their private parts. The result is a film that you feel, but one that you can think deeply about. It's also an immensely enjoyable film from a visual sense. Every part of it is beautifully composed and shot, making it one of those films where any given frame could be printed out and put on the wall. It's a slam dunk for fans of period piece costume dramas, which I am. I just like watching people in the 18th century do things especially when they're from the affluent classes I now wish to abolish. But I mean, seriously, like I'm just, Oh, what shall we do today? Well, I shall finish my correspondence and write my, write my sister who is in, in Venice. And then we shall, I think we shall go for a walk and visit our, our neighbors, the Mandalays. Yes. And, and uh, why don't you put on something, uh, some, some tea and, and some scones. Yes. And then I shall, Walk the grounds and examine the horses. It just seems like... <sighs> Wonderful. But now we should eat the rich. But if all that fails, there's the simple fact that this features two of the most electric performances in recent memory. Edith Canel and Noemi Manel are absolutely fantastic. And watching the interplay between these two beautiful, charismatic actresses is a real joy. As an added bonus, Luana Bajarmi and Valeria Bolino are superb in the film's two other main speaking roles. Okay, and just like last episode, this is where I want Patrick Starr to yell, What kind of place is this? This is the part of the show where I explain some of the cultural differences that might make for some initial confusion for American audiences. So this isn't quite as tricky as in episode one for a few reasons. It takes place in France, which is more culturally similar to America than China. It's also much less expansive. The film has basically one setting and four characters. Many of the societal implications are, well, implied. And while I can't prove this, I think all period pieces are somewhat homogenized because of our shared separation from the time period. So there will be cultural differences, but those will often be a product of time rather than location. And because we are also removed from that setting, the differences can only be so granular and nuanced. Meaning if we did an 18th century period piece costume drama, one from England, one from France, one from you know, America, one from maybe even like Russia, I'm guessing that the actual geographic location isn't going to produce the same sort of differences as just we all are looking back and being like, oh, look at these old tiny people. Anyway, there are a few things to note that might help make this film a little more accessible. The first thing might seem obvious, but remember that at this time, an aristocratic woman's responsibility is to get married and marry well, especially the firstborn, you, remember, you may remember in Hamilton when Angelica sings, <clears throat> I haven't practiced this, 
I'm a girl in a world in which my only job is to marry rich. My father has no son, so I'm the one which a social climb for one. So I'm the oldest and wittiest and the gossip in New York City is insidious and Alexander is penniless. <laughs> that doesn't mean I want him any less. Okay, so now that that's over, it's probably the only time I'm ever going to sing on the podcast. <clears throat> also, is Angelica not the greatest? Like, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff about Hamilton, and I don't want to make this too big of a side, but... The weird anti-Hamilton, anti-Lin-Manuel Miranda discourse, or maybe more so just like, Hamilton isn't that great, Lin-Manuel isn't that great, is one of the dumbest things that has ever made its way through our conversations and through like the Twitter space. That musical is fucking great, and Lin-Manuel Miranda is a genius, and we should be thankful for both of them. But of all the great things in that musical, I think Angelica is just pretty close to the greatest thing. Um, that may or may not have something to do uh, with my huge crush on Renee Elise Goldsberry, but we'll move on. So anyway, Eloise is facing the same burden that Angelica is facing. However, uh, that wasn't always the case. We find out that Eloise, as the second born, was living in a convent, but after her older sister committed suicide, she had to return to her home and take her older sister's place. You may or may not be wondering about the convent piece of this. Why make that Eloise's background when it doesn't really come up in the story? If I'm not mistaken, this goes back to a medieval tradition wherein the firstborn son's destiny was to be a knight or take on his father's lordship, essentially pick up where his father left off in a military and political tradition. It was very common for the secondborn to go into the clergy. But in Eloise's case, there's the very practical answer that if you were a same-sex attracted woman in a world where you'd be expected to marry a man, joining a convent might just be a safe way to go. So basically, what the, all this is to say is that Eloise was in a convent and her older sister was the one who needed to get married. Now Eloise is the one who needs to get married because her older sister has died. Okay, next thing, again, pretty minor. This film takes place on an island in the province of Brittany which is in the northwesternmost region of France, that part that juts into the Atlantic Ocean. There are around 800 islands in this region. Reminder, through most of human history, women have not shaved their armpits. So don't be surprised when you see it. Not really a spoiler, but there's an abortion in this film. At this time and place, there wouldn't exactly be a safe and convenient way to carry that out. So home remedies would certainly be a thing which is why Eloise Hermelian try all manner of things to end Sophie's pregnancy. It's sobering to pair this sequence with the home remedies Autumn tries in 2020's Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which is another film that you must watch. And it's kind of startling to see that hundreds of years later, um, young women who feel like they're out of options are turning to strange home remedies to try to get out of this situation. Um, this is not the podcast for that, though. The last thing that you should know, but doesn't relate to the setting, but to one of the main subjects of the film that many viewers may not be at all familiar with, and it's the female gaze, which is standard fare for academic discussion, but maybe a barrier of entry for many viewers who want to understand discussion around the film. We do this. We, I mean, people who have essentially, you know, studied uh, critical theory. Ooh, this is scary. Um, like we may throw around terms like female gaze, feminine gaze, and um, that's G-A-Z-E, not G-A-Y-S. And I can understand why that might be confusing with this particular film. But um, 
let's clarify what that means because we forget that not everyone knows what these terms mean. In brief, most of the time, women are presented through the male gaze. How they appear on screen is consciously or subconsciously constructed with the male viewer in mind. Women appear on screen to be looked at with little consideration of what they might be looking at, especially when that gaze might be turned back on a male character. One of the just sort of great examples of how this is working is, and I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes, is from Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, one of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films, where there's a scene, and it doesn't really even make sense why it happens in the first place, but essentially uh, Kirk and um, a female character who, forgive me, I don't actually know the character's name, I haven't seen the movie, it's probably not great when I'm talking about the female gaze and I know the female character's name, but maybe that's... <laughs> Uh, maybe that's fitting. Um, in the scene, the female character asks Kirk to just turn around, and he just he's not really sure why, but he turns around, and she starts to undress. Um, she's going to be changing her clothes, and uh, this scene is shot facing Kirk, so we're looking over Kirk's shoulder. We can't quite see what she's doing. But we're sort of similarly in the perspective that Kirk cannot see her. We are in Kirk's position of not being able to see this woman who is getting into her, who's taking off her clothes and can be in her in her underwear. When Kirk turns around, like she asked him not to, turns around and looks at her, then we, like Kirk, get to ogle her in her underwear. And this is clearly this this scene is totally from the male character's perspective even though it doesn't necessarily need to be and it also has in mind the male viewer who is uh presumably going to find this pleasurable to with kirk have him turn around and see this beautiful woman in her underwear anyway that was way longer of an aside that i wanted to give to that movie this film Portrait, which scores off the charts on the Bechdel test, that's another academic term that I, this time I'm just going to shoot right by and look it up, gives women room to work and it explores parts of their lives that don't usually make it on screen. And one element that allows us to explore is what happens when women look. This is the part of the podcast that makes the most sense if you've seen the film. So again, going forward, this is going to spoiler warning this is going to be a discussion that won't make a ton of sense if you haven't seen the film i'd love it if you watch it if you haven't and then come back and listen to what i'm about to talk about next where i discuss some of the themes characters scenes and filmmaking choices that make this film great again i'm working up a way to come up with segments for this discussion so it's going to seem a little rambly a little discursive I thought a lot about how I want to approach discussing this film because so much has been written about it over the last 18 or so months, making some of the more important thematic elements really well-tread ground. I don't really want to do 10 minutes on the female gaze when Dunnett's dozens of smarter people have already done so. But what I do want to talk about is how brawny the quote-unquote obvious ideas and themes in this movie are. Put another way, I want to point out that some of the main themes and motifs in this film are overt, but that they are not any less rewarding because of that. We can continue to talk about them, to discuss them, to think about them. One of my favorite things that films can do is to be subtle while being obvious. 
Some great recent examples of this are treatments of class in Parasite, race in Get Out, misogyny in Promising Young Woman, which is a great film, and masculinity in The Art of Self-Defense. Each of these films returns to the main point again and again in obvious fashion that can move into outright caricature, but rather than allow the audience to rest in its preformed notions about the film's subject, this strategy actually beckons further, more nuanced thought. It also rewards rewatch, as the point is sometimes pinging around so quickly throughout the film that we can miss the subtleties. So how does this play out in Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Well, it begins with women observing a woman and then never lets up. References to looking and observing are too many to note, and many, many scenes are based around this simple act, with the camera often calling attention to it while remaining unobtrusive. One scene that stands out is when Eloise and Marianne report on their observations of each other. While painting, Marianne describes to Eloise some of the mannerisms she has picked up on while observing her, but then, not wanting to offend, she apologizes and expresses that she would not like to be in Eloise's position, the subject of intense scrutiny through the process of portraiture. Eloise, now agreeing to let Marianne paint and thus observe her, replies that they are in the exact same position and beckons Mechan to come stand by her and look back at the easel, the position of the artist, who would, it is worth noting, usually be a man, and points out that while Mechan is observing her, she is observing Mechan, and matches Mechan's observations of mannerisms with some of her own. The sexual attention after this, even when Marianne returns to the easel, is absolutely crackling. It's a scene about two women looking at each other and talking about looking at each other. And it's not clear to me whether or not two people have had a conversation like this that doesn't immediately precede lovemaking. And yet it feels so real, the intimacy, the familiarity expressed here inside of a big society-shaping idea is so moving, so provocative. Like I'm saying, subtle while being obvious. Another example is the film's parallel to the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Again, not subtle at all and certainly not what we might call, I don't know, realistic, which is such a loaded and misunderstood term. But I'm still thinking about it. Each time I've watched the film, I've thought about this parallel to Orpheus and Eurydice a little differently. The film's goal is to make you say, is not to make you say, aha, this is like Orpheus and Eurydice. But instead, it wants you to say, this is like Orpheus and Eurydice. So what does that suggest? Still one more of things that I just really like to, to think about, even though it's so it's obvious, but it's subtle, is the recurring fire motif. It's everywhere and is, again, anything but subtle, ranging from Marianne accidentally setting the previous artist's portrait on fire to Elhuis's dress catching fire at the feast. But sometimes when a motif or symbol is so present, it focus it forces us to think a little more carefully about what it's doing, because maybe it's doing something slightly different when it appears. Maybe sometimes it's there and doesn't mean anything at all. Is Eloise being on fire the point of the film? The short answer is no. The long answer is yes. This film is a masterclass in being obvious but subtle. I'm also so intrigued by the film's treatment of sex, not sex as in the biological makeup of people, but as in, you know, sex and all that goes with that. I'm going to sneak the how an American film would get this wrong segment here. 
This film is incredibly sexy, and not just accidentally. The content is inherently sexy. Two beautiful women kiss. So, yeah. But so is its presentation. The presentation, I'm saying, is sexy, not just the fact that sexy things happen. The lighting, the framing, the lack of a score, the dialogue, the pacing, and yet there's so little, you know, sex. There's even a relative dearth of nudity. The film's erotic nature comes not from naked female forms or from explicit depictions of sex acts, but in the beautiful intimacy between the two characters. That's why we see a little saliva between their lips when they pull apart from a kiss, but don't see them writhing around in bed together. Shyama knows her actresses are hot, and she knows we know they're hot. She doesn't need to give you unnecessary chances to ogle them. Consider that Mechian is naked in what we might call the third scene of the film. She's sitting in front of the fire, smoking a pipe, and waiting for her clothes and canvases to dry. Her private parts are mostly, but not totally, obscured. Skama is not teasing us or titillating us. She's just got a woman having a private moment where she'd be naked. In short, this movie is sexy, and to some degree about sex, but never for its own sake. It's tasteful without being prudish, erotic without being pornographic, bold without being shocking. Let's talk a little bit about Sophie and the Countess. Through, though this film might be called a two-hander, the presence of the young servant girl and Eloise's mother is not at all superfluous. The two help to triangulate Mechan and Eloise's characters and as members of society. Mechan and Eloise are kind to Sophie, helping her and legitimately enjoying her company, letting her do her servant's work, but willing to help her out with tasks like cooking. We get to see them interact with someone other than each other. With the Countess, we get to see them with a person of authority, someone who demands their respect, someone who represents their impending loss. And yet, just as we see what the two have in common with Sophie, we see things they have in common with the Countess, too. Consider the moment where she shares a moment speaking of Milan and laughing with Mechan, or the ways in which we can see the same ferocity, the same predisposition to anger as her daughter has. Taken in sum, the four women are a <clears throat> portrait of the restrictive position of women in their society. The ways in which Mechan and Eloise are restricted are obvious, but the picture becomes more complete when we see the ways Sophie's class compounds the perils of her position, and also when we consider the position of the Countess. Think about this. The way she controls her daughter is a product of her own story, taken from Milan to France for a marriage, unable to move back until she can secure a similar arrangement for her daughter. She might have the power in this film, she also seems very unhappy and like she feels forced to inflict a certain pain on her daughter in order to make herself just a little happier. All right, let's talk about one scene, shall we? Just to admire some genius filmmaking. It's Eloise's reveal. It begins with an inversion of the traditional bell of the ball walking down the staircase, as it is Mirianne who walks down the staircase to find Eloise, hooded and cloaked, turned away from her. In the dark of the entryway, she seems such an imposing figure as the French might say. This gives way to an explosion of sound and color as Eloise emerges from the manor, Mechian hot on her heels. Sometimes all you have to do as a director is let nature do its work, and the scene is breathtaking as we go with Mechian following Eloise. The timing of the reveal of her hair, which just looks fucking great, okay, is one of those cool little filmmaking tricks. I don't have any idea how to make a hood falling off of hair look beautiful, but this did it. However, the beauty of nature and the hair 
might be lost in Märchen, and it will soon be forgotten by us too when Eloise takes off in a sprint for the cliffs, and we, like Märchen, fear that she is going to take her life as her older sister did. The handheld camera here is perfect for the effect of running and pursuing. When Eloise does finally reveal herself to the camera, and to Märchen, it's not exactly a damn like the famous Rita Hayworth entrance in Gilda, but it is such a striking and beautiful visage. Maybe it wouldn't grace the cover of Vogue, but it suggests so much about her and leaves such an impression. The scene is then finished with an absolutely dynamite exchange. Eloise, I've dreamt my whole life of doing that. Dying? Eloise, running. Okay, lastly, let's blow through a few of my favorite little things in the movie. Things that the movie is certainly not about, but help make it the enjoyable work of art that it is. So in the words of Notorious LHB on Twitter, I'm still thinking about that tweet that said that portrait is what happens when women are left alone on an island, and the lighthouse is what happens when men are left alone on an island. Women, communal living, breakdown of class structure, midnight bonfires, good cooking, wine, art, orgasms, men, drinking kerosene, seagull murder, wanton destruction, farts, god complexes, chasing each other with an axe, repressed homoeroticism. I can't really say it any better than that. This is a great professionals at work movie. Sometimes in a film, we get to go to work with the professional. We get to see their preparation, approach, equipment, techniques. We see that here with Mirchen. A lot of this film is watching her do art. And I love it. Next. Underrated pipe smoking movie. Next. Am I the only one who was freaked out the first time the women started singing with that eerie opening crescendo? Oh, well, it was worth it. The song is beautiful, haunting as the lyrics are, non puissant fugere, which is Latin for they cannot escape. Next. I just want to be in that kitchen, okay? Just let me have that. Next. The baby on the bed during the abortion scene is one of the more complicated and moving moments outside of the central drama. I really like the actual artwork in the film, especially the second portrait of Eloise. Next. There's really no overstating that final shot. Uh, it, if you've seen it, you know. What, what is there to say? It's... <sighs> ah, I felt some things, man, but I don't... I don't know. I don't know. Okay, well, that's the end of episode two of Inch High Hurdle. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to try to do better next time. And if you would, could you please turn around? <laughs>